my dear brothers and sisters, I'd like to spend our time this morning considering those two parables that we've just read from the Gospel of Luke and chapter 16. The background to these parables really comes, I think, at the beginning of chapter 15. If we just look back at that chapter, we find at verse 1 that the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the scribes and Pharisees complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus responds to this complaint about the scribes and from the scribes and Pharisees about him welcoming these sinners as they saw it, those who, as far as they were concerned, were beyond the pale, by speaking a number of parables in this chapter 15. We have there the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the well-known parable of the prodigal son. And all, the, all of these parables are designed to illustrate the lengths that God goes, and therefore Christ, to seek out, to bring to repentance, and to save sinners. And the fact that God is always willing to, as it were, go the extra mile to, to bring back the one that's gone astray, even apparently neglecting those who have, have indeed already accepted the gospel message in order to do so and bending over backwards to receive back, as in the case of the prodigal son, the one who's gone astray, offering complete forgiveness in the event of repentance. This chapter 16 that we have read today appears to me to be a subtle counter-attack by Christ against the holier-than-thou attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. And it reveals, really, their uncaring attitudes to the poor, the needy, and the so-called sinners of their society. And indeed, it goes beyond that and reveals their selfish and self-indulgent greed and their lack of real love behind the outward show of righteousness that they put out to the world. I think in the case of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he's actually using their false doctrine against them and even perhaps adopting a mocking tone towards it. In Christ's time, the Pharisees and the scribes were amongst the richer middle classes of Jewish society and they looked down upon the poorer working classes such as Christ and his disciples were, as far as they were concerned. Christ was a builder, or carpenter, and his disciples, for the most part, were fishermen, or certainly of the working classes. <clears throat> and you, you, you get this impression all the way through, that they're just looking for things to criticise with Christ. Who is this upstart? Who is this uned, uned, uneducated man who sets out to be a teacher and a preacher in, instead of ourselves? <clears throat> Coming to the parable of the unjust steward itself, the first of these two parables in chapter 16, I think we can clearly see that the person with considerable wealth and property that's depicted here represents the scribes and Pharisees and the Jewish elite themselves. Only those with a large amount of wealth and property would need a steward or a manager to look after their affairs and their possessions. 
But in this case, this steward that's brought to our attention here in this story is a dishonest steward, but nevertheless a shrewd one. One who, knowing that he's about to lose his job on account of his dishonesty, was generous with the debtors, debtors to his master, we notice, not to himself, but he was only generous towards them in order to gain their support, to gain their sympathy for him when he was dismissed by his master. And one of the problems in understanding this parable is we need to be very clear as to who it is who's speaking when in verse 8 we find the master commending the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. What we have to be clear here is this master who's commending the unjust steward is not Christ. This is the master of the of the steward himself, who's just part of the drapery, if you like, of the parable. He's just part of this little story that Christ told, not a literal one. It's just a story that he's made up in order to make a moral point and really, I think, to have a dig at the scribes and the Pharisees and their approach to their to those who they look down on in their society, the poorer people. <clears throat> and their misuse in the case of the unjust steward of the things of this world. <clears throat> Indeed, Christ himself draws the lessons, and I think his comment really starts at the middle of verse 8. The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. That's Christ beginning to comment himself on this parable, on the lessons from it. And he goes on, verse 9, I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own. <clears throat> so how can we make friends for ourselves by the unrighteous mammon? Unrighteous mammon just representing the things of this life, the material possessions that we have, the money that's been entrusted to us indeed by God. Well, we can make friends for ourselves through our use of the unrighteous mammon by being truly kind and generous in our use of it. And I put an exclamation mark there. This will make us friends in this world now, and indeed it will store up treasure for us in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt. I think it's worth turning over to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 25, where we have three great parables of Christ there, which illustrate the way that God views those good deeds that we do now and the way that we use our present possessions in his service and the reward that he he will hold out. If we look at the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, that's the last parable of three in that chapter, and pick up the record at verse 34. It's Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Here we have the nations being gathered before him, being Christ, represented by the king in this parable, and he separates them one for another, one from another. He puts the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left, verse 33. And then verse 34, 
the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. You can see these ones have been using the mammon of unrighteousness, the, the possessions that they had in this life, for the benefit of others and not just for themselves. Verse 36. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. So that's wise use of the mammon of unrighteousness. Yes, we can be honest, trustworthy, law-abiding and fair in all our business dealings. That's how to be faithful in the use of the unrighteous mammon rather than unfaithful, like that unjust steward rather was. <clears throat> and here we have the unrighteous mammon, in, in returning to Luke 16 now, contrasted with the true riches which represent the things of God and the things of the gospel, the things of eternal life and the kingdom of God, which are eternal things and which God will give us. Indeed, he says, Christ says that they'll be our own, they'll become our own if we make wise use of the mammon of unrighteousness, the things that we have in this life now, and if we're faithful in our use of them. Let's have a look at verse 13 of this chapter. This is his final lesson from this parable. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. <clears throat> mammon. Mammon is useful, and it can be used wisely, we can use wisely the things of this life, but what we should never do is worship it. You know, I've got clients who seem to worship money. They're always beating people down in the prices that contractors offer them. Everything they do, they've got to try and get a better price and not take the first one that they're offered. And they get a name for meanness and hardness in their business dealings. And they can be quite hard to work for, but you know, they're our clients, so we have to do our best for them. But they're really lovers of money. Whereas for the believer in the gospel, we are to be lovers of God first and not lovers of money. Money is just something that's useful and it can be used wisely. It can enable us to build up, as I said, treasure in heaven, but it's not something that we should worship. We can see from the reaction of the Pharisees that they have perceived in verse 14 that this parable was directed against them. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before God, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Yes, he he got to the 
the quick, he cut them to the quick really, hadn't he? And I think the lesson obviously got home to them. They realised that he was directing this parable against them, against their hidden avariciousness and love of money behind the veneer of righteousness that they put out to the world. Verses 16 to 18 of this chapter on the surface appear to be rather unconnected with what goes before and what goes after these two parables and they're sort of sandwiched between the two. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. For it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. You might think, well, there just seem to be unconnected ideas that Christ is putting forward here. I think we have to remember that this is probably a contracted record, and Christ probably said a lot more than is actually recorded here. The record just picks out the bones of it, as it were. But actually all the points that Christ is making are relevant to the to the background and to the bad attitudes of the scribes and Pharisees. Yes, they hadn't noticed that the law and the prophets were coming to a fulfilment with the coming of John and now with the work of Christ, the one who was soon to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world and to bring to fulfilment all the sacrifices offered unto the law to, to render them void, to render them no longer necessary on account of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. They hadn't noticed that times were changing and that God was bringing about a change in his arrangements and other men and women who believed in the work of Christ were pressing into that kingdom whilst they were being left behind. They also hadn't noticed, it appears, that the law actually taught men and women to be generous and kind to others. And it even taught that there was an opportunity for Gentiles to adopt the hope of Israel. You might remember we read quite recently when Solomon dedicated the temple at Jerusalem and he offered that great dedicatory prayer. He actually mentioned the opportunity for Gentiles to come to Jerusalem and worship at that temple. And there was a facility there, a place, a court where they could actually worship. Indeed, there was a call to the Gentiles in the time of Christ. But the Pharisees tended to stand in self-righteous um, position. They wouldn't extend themselves to to those who they considered the outcasts of their society, and they certainly turned their nose up at Gentiles and they wouldn't even eat with them. Yes, the Pharisees were rejecting the change in divine arrangements heralded by John and taught by Jesus with a strong emphasis in, on, in his teaching on love, which was the essence of the law. Christ didn't stress the letter of the law like the Pharisees. He stressed the love and the, the virtues that were supposed to lie behind it and which should truly motivate all acceptable worship of God. They did not, the Pharisees did not truly uphold the law of Moses, although they professed to revere it. And indeed, they were lax in such matters as divorce, as he mentions here, and allowing, allowing it for all sorts of reasons, which illustrated their failure to keep the spirit of the law. So these points are all relevant to his argument, really, with the Pharisees. Coming to this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which comprises the rest of this chapter 16, 
I think in this parable, Christ is making a subtle parody, that means making fun of, both the attitudes as well as the doctrine of the Pharisees concerning the afterlife. One cardinal rule that we must be really clear about when we try to interpret the parables of Christ, indeed the parables of Scripture generally, is that they're not intended to teach fundamental doctrines. Anyone who bases doctrine upon a parable is making a big mistake because they're stories, usually with no basis in actual fact. They're just made-up stories, made up to teach one particular, usually moral, lesson. Of course, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, as we are, we realise that the Hebrew language is actually rich in all sorts of imagery, which you get into all sorts of trouble if you try and take it literally. In the Old Testament, we have rivers and forests metaphorically clapping their hands. We have in Isaiah 14, the dead being moved to speak up when the mighty kings of the Gentiles join them in Sheol, or the grave. It's not to be taken literally, is it? But we understand the point that the prophet is making. The nation of Israel is likened to a fig tree, to a vine, was in our chapter in Ezekiel today. The princes of Israel were likened to cubs, young lions. And Gentile powers are likened to great eagles, Ezekiel 17, we read that the other day, didn't we? All of these things are metaphors intended to, and parables intended to teach a particular lesson. Those who base their doctrine upon this parable are as astray from the clear teaching of Scripture concerning the death state as were the Pharisees. And I put an exclamation mark there. So coming to the parable itself, it really is depicting in the person of this rich man who fares sumptuously every day the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees and the wealthy priestly class of Christ's day, who really looked after themselves, made themselves very rich, sometimes at the expense of the people, selling them goods at the temple at exorbitant prices and things like that in order to make themselves wealthy. Whilst they themselves live like lords, the poor people, represented by Lazarus, were often in grinding poverty and sometimes absolutely destitute as this poor man Lazarus is an extreme example that Christ uses, illustrates. But Christ in this parable depicts the situation after the death state in the very terms that the Pharisee believed in about the death state. So upon death, those representing the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, suffer the very rejection and punishment which they reserved for those who didn't share their punctilious observance of the letter of the law. For those in the churches around us sometimes who wish to take this parable literally, I think we can say that if every righteous person who's ever died has gone to Abraham's bosom, he must have a mighty big bosom in order to accommodate all of those people. It really doesn't make sense to imagine one immortal soul putting putting, the, putting his arms around another immortal soul. Well, they don't have any arms, do they, immortal souls? So how could it happen? And, and comforting him after death. It really is ridiculous to try and take these things literally. And does anyone really think it's just for someone to endure eternal torment in a flame? 
just after a few years of of living this life and, and being disobedient to God's law. It's, it's not just, is it? The story is not to be taken literally, but is, I believe, a parody of the teaching of the Pharisees. And if you look at the historian Josephus, he actually mentions this sort of teaching as being the beliefs of the Pharisees about the afterlife. That's what they believed. And Christ is using their own teaching against them. I can even imagine he might have even adopted a slightly mocking tone when he, he, he said some of these things. Oh, besides all this, there's a great gulf fixed between us. So no one can pass from one state to another, even if he wants to. And you can imagine the tone that he might have used in, in speaking this parable, really to mock the beliefs of the Pharisees. But the lessons from this parable are clear enough, and they come out from verse 27. And Christ puts them into the mouth of Abraham in this parable. We'll pick it up at verse 27, which is the words of the, the rich man now in the afterlife, supposedly. The rich man says, I beg you therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Yes, there were five books of Moses, more than enough, one for each of the five brothers of this rich man, according to Abraham, for them to learn the lessons from those books. As I said, actually, the books of Moses contain their many lessons about the right use of the material possessions of this life and how they should care for the poor and they should leave things in the fields for the poor to pick up and have food to eat and so on. The law actually was intended to encourage generosity, kindness and virtue, not the hard-hearted attitude and the avaricious attitude adopted by the Jewish leaders of Christ's time. It's interesting that Christ gives this poor man uh, here, who is comforted in the afterlife, he gives him the name Lazarus. And, and he draws the lesson that they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. According to the Gospel of John, Christ's final great miracle, the last miracle that he did, certainly as far as John's record is concerned, certainly you could say it's a pinnacle of the miracles that Christ did, was the raising of Lazarus, recorded in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. There are only actually seven signs before Christ's death in the Gospel of John, and that's the pinnacle of them. And how do we find the rulers reacting to that? If we turn over to the Gospel of John in chapter 12, we find out how the people, and the rulers in particular, reacted to that miracle fulfilling really the words of uh, Christ in this parable. John chapter 12, and we pick it up at verse 9. This is Christ at Bethany, in the house of Mary, Martha and Lazarus, eating a meal there, getting ready to go up to Jerusalem for the last time. 
Um, and we read in verse 9 of John chapter 12, Now a great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there, and they came, came to Bethany, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So far from the Jewish leaders, the chief priests believing in Christ as a result of this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, they plotted to put Lazarus to death as well. And it goes on, verse 17. Therefore the people who were with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. So the, the common people tended to believe as a result of that miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Yes, they've been trying to put Christ down, haven't they? trying to find reasons to disbelieve him all the time. But it was hard to argue with the miracle of raising someone from the dead, wasn't it? <coughs> but nevertheless, nevertheless, we find at the end, towards the end of, of this particular uh, period in Christ's ministry, verse 37, although he had done so many signs before him, before them, they did not believe in him. So, as a generality, and certainly amongst the ruling classes, they didn't believe, even though Lazarus, the very name that Christ had used in this parable, was raised from the dead. But I nevertheless think that Christ was actually going further than this in this parable. And he was thinking not just of Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead, but he was thinking of himself. And we this morning, dear brothers and sisters, remember the one who not only rose from the dead, but rose from the dead to immortality, to die no more, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the key sign, wasn't it? The most important sign to the world that God was with him and that God was working out his purpose to bring redemption for the world through him. It's interesting to find from the Acts of the Apostles that whilst in the main the Jewish rulers still did not believe, even after the resurrection to eternal life of Christ himself. In chapter 6 of the Acts, we read that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So some of them did turn and some of them did believe after the resurrection of Christ himself. Maybe they even remembered the words of this parable and realised, yes, that that's what he was talking about. One has risen from the dead and this is a reason to believe. So Christ did not die in vain, even in relation to the Israel of his own time. Certainly did not rise to no purpose, did he? Because then the door of faith was open to the Gentiles. And we today have had the opportunity to believe the gospel, to understand the grace of God in Christ and to believe in it. And so believing in his work as our Redeemer, having faith in his sacrifice to bring redemption to the world, we look forward to the day when he will return first to his people to deliver them from that great northern-led invader so that they can then recognise him as their Messiah. Because when Israel turned to Christ and recognised him as their Christ, then the kingdom can indeed be set up. So we long and we wait and we pray for that day.